audio check. On this episode, we talk to the CEO and founder of a new company that looks to extend telemedicine visits to community pharmacies. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. This is RX Radio. I'm your host, Richard Waith, and I have with me here today, Dr. Henry Legier. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to uh, touch base with you here. You are the CEO and founder of MD Box, which is a uh, a really cool, uh, I think, addition that could be um, added to a revenue model uh, to community pharmacies. And we had, we had met at a trade show recently, and it was I was really intrigued by the by your um, by the product, um, by the economics behind it, and how it can kind of change the way we provide care to patients, and how pharmacists have a role in that. But uh, before we dive into MD Box and uh, what it is, how it works, and how it would be integrated into a community pharmacy, can you first by just start by uh, telling the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I was a practicing physician for uh, more than ten years before I started working on MD Box. I had gone to Columbia for medical school in New York City and then done an immunology fellowship at Harvard Medical School, rotating between uh, Boston Children's Hospital, Mass General, and Brigham and Women's Hospital, and um, developed a lot of expertise as um, both an immunologist, but um, also in adopting new technologies to help improve the quality of patient care. And so um, in my own practice, I was trying to institute things that would make my practice function more efficiently, uh, make sure that we were able to cut down on mistakes in in terms of entering vital signs and uh, recording values on any tests that we performed. And I was trying to create a comprehensive platform that would streamline the flow of any working clinic. And in doing so, I combined what I was working on in the past with some of my um, um, immunoassay development um, and the, you know, the technologies that everybody uses every day, like cell phones and uh, wearables. And I wanted to create an end-to-end platform that allows people to initiate symptom-specific telemedicine visits that are enhanced by the wearables that they have and um, any tests that are performed um, can be quickly put into an electronic medical record using machine vision and um, and then the note taking on the part of the providers could be streamlined through um, artificial intelligence algorithms that make it very easy to accurately detail the encounter. Now, one thing that I felt was fairly fascinating in the conversation that we had was that you felt that the community pharmacy was a great gateway uh, for uh, for the product and for this type of care. Now, can you give us like a high level overview as to like how that would work? Uh, like how does this work for a patient and why is the pharmacy kind of like that, that gateway for it? Yeah, sure. I'll start with kind of the logic behind, um, targeting pharmacies as a gateway for healthcare. Um, a lot of it had to do with as a practicing physician and, um, and historically my interactions with doctors when I wasn't a doctor, um, and seeing that interaction evolve over time. When I was a kid, I, I came from a small town in South Dakota originally, and the same doctor that delivered me, delivered my mom, was at my grandmother's side when she passed away. And you really had a personal relationship with your healthcare provider. And over time, especially in, in larger communities, 
um, as a consequence of physician shortages and kind of the, you know, our private payer reimbursement models, doctors have had to work faster. Um, they're afforded less time to have that real quality face-to-face interaction. So they're focused on making sure they make the right diagnosis and, and get patients on the right treatment plan, but they don't always have the time to explain it as much as they would like to. Um, and they don't always have the time to explain the medications that are part of the treatment plan in the level of detail that they would want to. And um, having been now on the other side of it as a doctor and having gone through all the training that you do in hospital, um, I was exposed to what pharmacists can do in terms of taking the time to, you know, go to a patient's bedside in the hospital and really make sure that patients understand their treatment plan. I mean, a, a treatment plan only works if a patient's compliant. Now, in the hospital, it's a, a little easier to make a patient compliant because you've got nurses administering medications. But the moment that they get discharged from the hospital, you want to make sure they understand the importance of everything that they were on and that, you know, it's not okay just to take two out of the three medications. It's, they have to know what they're taking, why they're taking it. So they understand it and they're on board with the treatment plan. It has to be a real um, comprehensive understanding in, in order to have that real trust um, in the, the whole treatment plan as a whole. And um, out at community pharmacies, whether it's a, a big box retailer or a mom and pop corner store pharmacy that may be the only pharmacy in a small town, um, when patients go in to fill their prescriptions, the, the pharmacy staff has the time, typically, that a doctor's office doesn't have to perform that type of education. And, and having seen it as a, as a consumer and a patient myself, it just made sense that um, when a patient walks up into uh, to the pharmacy counter and it's cold and flu season and they are asking the pharmacy staff, hey, what over-the-counter remedy might help me get through this cold and flu season? That's a great time to tell them, hey, you know, it's not too late to get immunized against uh, influenza. Or it's not too late to get tested to make sure that you're not spreading it at home or at work. Um, or even as you're walking around in the community, let's test you on the spot and let's connect you to a telemedicine provider and and let's go ahead and um, treat your, your condition if it actually warrants being treated. So it was one of those um, moments, I think, that I was probably standing in line at the pharmacy and I think I really did see somebody come up and ask a pharmacist questions about um, kind of cold symptoms, that g- general, how to distinguish between cold virus and influenza. And I just thought, you know, if, if there was a minute clinic here or where there was a provider on site, um, you'd really be able to address that while you've got a patient there experiencing symptoms. And you would even be able to give them definitive treatment on the spot. And then obviously from a a cost perspective, you you can't expect every small town pharmacy or even the big box pharmacies uh, for it to be economically viable for them to have a doctor or nurse practitioner on staff 24-7, you know, or or at least during the hours that the pharmacy is open. But with telemedicine kiosks or, um, you know, a direct connection to a telemedicine platform, through the pharmacy, you really can. You can extend that level and that quality of service um, to all of the consumers and patients that are walking into your pharmacy. So I think you might have, being just a, with a background in community pharmacy myself, you might have struck a tone there saying that uh, we uh, normally have the time to uh, you know, sit and educate patients on things where some would argue we make it look like we have the time <laughs> because it could, yeah, be, yeah, yeah. it could be quite crazy sometimes in those pharmacies. But yeah, I, I, and you're right. And what it is, it's a, it's making a, a conscientious effort to carve out that time. And unfortunately, just um, in the clinical setting and sometimes in a hospital setting, you don't have that time. Mm-hmm. Or or you conscientiously 
delegate that time to someone like a pharmacist. Yeah, and and, and I so yep. I actually want us to be have that role. You know, like that's something that I want for for the industry of, of pharmacy is for people to be relying on that because I think we're the best, you know, individuals and and uh, whether it be because of the location, because of our personal abilities, whatever the case may be, I think we're we're in a great position to be to have that role of educating the patient on their healthcare and their medication. So um, and, you know, and it's just it's just figuring out the workflows to create that time and create that efficiency, so we can take the time to uh, talk to our patients and things like that. Yeah, so, and, and 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 platforms like ours and and like what other people are working on, I think is a good way to um, create that type of um, in hospital synergy that exists between the medical team and the pharmacy team. For some reason, once uh, people leave their you know clinical training settings, whether it's a residency program or a fellowship or even just the, the day-to-day um, structure of a large hospital, and they go out into their own clinical setting, they, they become disconnected from pharmacists. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's such an important relationship to have because there's a skill set that pharmacists have that doctors don't have. And I think most doctors would, would freely admit that, that um, you know, when you're in medical school, you learn everything there is about the, um, the use of medications and their side effects. And that's a static moment frozen in time. And then you go out into practice and you're, you're doing your best to keep up with new medications, new classes of drugs. When I was in medical school, um, there weren't fourth-generation cephalosporins. You know, we had third-generation cephalosporins. And it was only through interacting with um, pharmacists that, um, and, and you know, just doing my regular CMEs that I learned about new classes of antibiotics that were coming on board to help with issues of multi-organism um, resistance and, um, and, you know, just treating infections in a different way with new classes of antibiotics that didn't exist when I was in medical school. So I I think that making sure that um, there are platforms that bridge that gap between clinical providers and pharmacists is important because pharmacists are such an important part of getting a patient adoption of a treatment plan. Yeah. All right. So let's go into the details here as to how this works. I mean, when I passed by uh, and saw the product, it was, it was, literally a box, you know, that had a, what looked like a test inside that for a consumer. Uh, So can you give us uh, kind of the, uh, what it would be like for a patient, let's say if they wanted to use one of these um, uh, diagnostic um, diagnostic tests and how that would work um, at the pharmacy? Yeah. And and so um, there actually aren't diagnostic kits inside those boxes. And so it's it's more of a a marketing piece box. The, what's in there are educational materials and, um, launch cards, QR codes that actually initiate the visit inside of our MD box app. Oh, okay. um, but, but, but what's really happening is the pharmacy, um, if, if that's one of our sites where we're performing clinical services, they're stocked with the appropriate test um, devices. So um, whether it's a, you know, a strep test that's coming from Quidel or a flu test that's coming from Abbott or Lear, um, all of the appropriate diagnostic kits that we need for a range of, of diagnoses across the spectrum for acute infectious diseases, um, even things, um, you know, as uncommon um, in some areas, but very common in the Northeast, like Lyme disease. Um, there are test kits and assays for you know, a whole host of things. And we just make sure they're stocked in the pharmacies where we're offering clinical services. So somebody comes to the counter and they see that this is an on-site um, MD box location then they can actually initiate a medical visit there at the pharmacy counter by, by paying for a telemedicine visit. And then their 
um, brought over to a clinical service area or a clinical service window, just depending on the type of visit. And, um, and basically the visit is curated through the pharmacy staff um, as a sort of telemedicine extender for our medical practice. So if a patient needs help with inputting data, um, you know, we have cash options and insurance options. So for some people, their telemedicine copay is cheaper than just paying cash for the product, especially if they've met their deductible. Um, for some people that don't have insurance or that have very high deductibles, they might prefer a cash option. Um, typically, the cash option is less than most people's urgent care copays. So it ends up being um, something that tends to be um, more favorable for a consumer than going into an urgent care, uh, going into an emergency room, regardless of how they decide to proceed with paying for it. But um, in the um, kind of the flow of how a consumer uses it, they're in that clinical service area and they are interacting with our app, whether it's the telemedicine extender services being performed by the pharmacy staff, where they're inputting the data on an iPad or a kiosk or a, a laptop, or if the patient's just using their own phone. You know, we have uh, an app that you can download on the um, Apple um, iOS store, the App Store, and on the Google Play Store for Android phones. And so folks that are, you know, 40 and younger, they might just want to do it themselves on their phone. And then when we need to actually do a throat swab, the pharmacist steps in, performs the throat swab. Um, somebody that's a little older that might not use their smartphones for anything other than a telephone, then they might prefer to have the pharmacy tech or pharmacist um, ask them the questions in a more traditional clinical encounter format. And then um, when they talk to the doctor, the pharmacist steps out of the room and then there's a two-way video conversation that takes place. So it's, it's pretty free-flowing. It really depends on the patient and on the pharmacy where we're operating how that flow actually takes place. And across the various pharmacies where we're um, operating, we see that from pharmacist to farm tech to patient to patient, um, the encounter looks a little bit different. But at the end of the day, they're all initiated by a consumer that's identifying their chief complaint. You know, I've got a sore throat today. Let's talk about that. And, and then they pretty much decide, oh, yeah, I can handle the intake myself on the phone. So in that situation where a patient um, can kind of walk themselves through the steps of our, um, our iPhone app intake, they get to a point where there's a, an algorithm that decides at this point, we can either connect you straight to a telemedicine provider and, and just talk through what your symptoms are and make a kind of an empiric diagnosis. Or if, if you hit enough um, um, tags on the AI, then it actually will make a decision that it seems like this is a, um, uh, a case where we would benefit from actually having the information that a diagnostic test can give us. And so at that point, we ping the pharmacist to come over, perform the strep test or flu test or, you know, colon cancer screening test, whatever the, the, the diagnostic test is. And, um, and they're, they're the ones performing either a nasal swab or a throat swab. And uh, once that test is processed, the patient's deposited in a virtual waiting room. And then a provider on the other side is seeing them in the virtual waiting room, accepting the visit and initiating a two-way video call with the patient that's sitting there in the pharmacy. So the idea is that you can go from having a symptom when you walked into the pharmacy to leaving with definitive treatment in the form of a treatment plan, all the supportive care instructions, any of the supportive care products that you would need, like you got a fever, then an antipyretic like Tylenol or Motrin. Um, if you got a sore throat, then any um, uh, analgesics that could help with the throat pain. But more importantly, if you've got strep throat, 
an antibiotic prescription that takes into account your antibiotic history, any allergies you might have. And so you're literally walking out of the pharmacy with anything that you would have gotten if you'd gone into an urgent care or an emergency room or an after-hours clinic, except that you've done it kind of on your own terms. You haven't had to wait forever. You haven't had to schedule an appointment. It's 24-7, 365 that we try to make it available at any of the 24-hour pharmacies. At the pharmacies that have set hours, uh, a lot of uh, the visits can be conducted from home, um, but the diagnostic tests have to be done um, in person at a pharmacy. So, you know, we're kind of restricted to the hours that the, the pharmacists are holding, but it's still less expensive and more convenient than having to go to an urgent care or emergency room in most cases. Yeah, very interesting. So I was with Publix a couple of years back where, so the the act of pharmacists uh, performing these tests on patients, uh, whether it be for strep or flu, uh, might be new to some. But for me, uh, I was with Publix a couple of years back where we actually were going to roll out a program where we were using this machine called, I think it was like the Sophia machine, where uh, the pharmacist went through a, a whole days of training as to how to properly take nasal and throat swabs to be able to test on this machine. Um, so I knew that that was coming and I, and I still do think this is the, you know, obviously this is going to be the future of what pharmacies are doing. Uh, we went from just kind of dispensing medications to educating patients, doing MTM to vaccinations. And I think these types of, um, what's a, a little bit, you know, for us a little bit more invasive, um, uh, which obviously to a physician that is not invasive, <laughs> um, but to yeah. a pharmacist, <laughs> this is fairly invasive, you know, for us to run some of these diagnostic exams. Uh, what is that training like uh, from from the yeah, MD box side, and what's that what's that onboarding like? Yeah, and so so I know that uh, pilot with Publix very well because I'm actually talking to the the maker of that Sophia Analyzer about how do we improve off of that experience. You know, it, there were a number of reasons why that that didn't catch fire in Florida and uh, wasn't considered successful. A lot of it had to do around what conditions a pharmacist could 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 um, act. You know, it. it as kind of a um, super pharmacist to make some simple diagnosis and treatment. And um, also it had to do with just the complexity of the collection methods and learning how to use the Sophia device. And so um, fortunately, there are a number of things that have really changed. Um, the regulatory environment has changed so that now it's easier for doctors and pharmacists to have relationships that allow pharmacists to not only treat just one or two conditions, but really open up the pharmacy to be a gateway to treat 20, 30 different conditions. Um, also, the insurance reimbursement um, has, has changed so that now um, those types of tests are actually reimbursed. So um, you had a kind of a combination of having the right vision, but just being ahead of your time when you guys did that pilot so that you were facing a tough regulatory environment and also it wasn't cost effective because you weren't getting reimbursed for it. And now the reimbursements are there. The regulatory environment is much better. And and patients are getting used to using, the, or you know, consumers in general, getting used to use um, smartphones for everything to, you know, hailing uh, ride-sharing services like Uber and Lyft, whereas you never would have thought 15 years ago that you're just going to use your phone to call a stranger and you're going to jump in their car wherever you are in the country. And so um, people are more on board with non-traditional medical settings. And really the focus now is on convenience, accuracy, precision. You don't want to um, um, sacrifice the quality of the medical care that's rendered. But it, 
there's a basic understanding that the technologies that we use every day can allow us to not compromise on the quality of care and we can kind of open up care into these non-traditional settings. So basically what the training involves is taking advantage of and, and leveraging those technologies. So we do um, some on-site training, but for the most part, we're able to get away with um, video training sessions that we filmed um, for some of our first rollouts with pharmacy staff. And then we have some online um, training, and, and obviously it's, it's interactive, so that way we can demonstrate that the folks at the pharmacy actually know how to perform these tests. And at the end, there's a there's a little kind of post-training test um, as a way for us to be able to validate that they have the skill set required to perform these simple diagnostic test collections. And um, at the end of the day, um, our software platform is capable of telling whether a diagnostic test um, is um, actually valid. So when we have the providers make a determination of is a test positive, is it negative, is it inconclusive, there's another box where we're actually analyzing it, just the quality of the collection itself. And so um, if, it, if it doesn't um, pass muster, then we don't actually allow the providers to even um, take into consideration that diagnostic data. You know, they're still talking to you. And right now, if you were to call a telemedicine doctor without the benefit of any of these diagnostic tests, uh, especially during the flu season and an epidemic, they may empirically diagnose you with the flu. You've got fever. You've got flu-like symptoms. The flu is going around. I'm going to go ahead and just treat you empirically for the flu. Um, and... Um, so worst case, we're no we're no worse off than uh, what other telemedicine practices are doing. Best case, we've actually got the diagnostic data to verify that our diagnosis is accurate, so that we're not prescribing when you don't need it, and we are um, not missing anybody that does need it. Yeah, and uh, I think that especially with a lot of some of these uh, companies that involve testing and. I think I, it's, I'm blanking now on that one company that got into a lot of trouble with kind of the uh, quality of their testing and things like that. I think it's important to not only be able to identify if it's, you know, positive and negative, but also identify the quality of the sample uh, to make sure that oh, things sure. are not yeah. um, uh, prescribed incorrectly or, or um, uh, prescribed when it shouldn't have been. So uh, before you mentioned reimbursements and the economics behind it, but before we get into that, because um, I have a few questions on that. What is what has been the experience like in terms of workflow? So one of the big things when we were training for that Sophia pilot was we were like, how is this going to freaking fit into our workflow with what we're currently <laughs> exactly. already doing? So what yeah. what have the experiences been there um, with traditional workflow and how this has been implemented? Yeah, so what we've seen is that uh, there have been a couple of especially small mom and pop type pharmacies where they don't have the staff to be able to execute it immediately. But when they see what they're able to offer their consumers, and that they really can be a gateway to healthcare. Um, they typically have hired a, a you know medical assistant or a farm tech that um, can help out when they're not performing um, telemedicine visits um, just around the pharmacy. But then when there are patients, those are the people that kind of act as the triage nurses. They input the data into the system. They perform the actual diagnostic test collections, and then they hand off the patient to the telemedicine provider. So um, a handful of locations have had to hire an extra person to act as that farm, that, that telemedicine extender, and it usually is somebody like a pharmacy tech um, or a medical assistant. The um, Some of the, the, the bigger pharmacies where they're well-staffed, they just assign um, a new role where they basically say, when there's somebody, because it's not that frequent. I mean, at any given pharmacy, 
you're maybe only talking about a handful of medical visits that occur in the course of a day, um, at least until there's better consumer adoption, patient adoption of, of walking into the pharmacy when you feel like you need a rapid test done. So um, early on, it really has not been a burden to the pharmacies. Um, from the consumer side of things, the flow has been, um, the feedback that we've gotten regarding the flow has been really encouraging. Patients that, you know, walk into the pharmacy, see that they could actually, that, that they may walk into a, a pharmacy looking for some advice on an over-the-counter pink eye medication. Well, then they see that the pharmacy is actually offering pink eye visits. And so they're actually quickly curated through um, collecting that data. They're talking to the telemedicine provider and they're getting not only the over-the-counter remedy, but they're also getting a definitive prescription that, that helps them get better faster. And so the feedback we get from patients is, you know, out of this world. It's exactly what we we're hoping to do. They're excited about how inexpensive it is. They're excited about how convenient it is. Um, same thing with, with flu and strep. We've got some amazing feedback. We've seen surprisingly that one of the most popular visit types is actually, um, uh, oral contraception um, for women. I, and I think something, some of that might have to do with you've got um, um, maybe young um, college girls or, or um, even um, married women that are not yet ready to have kids that are seeing how easy and convenient it is to just get it at the pharmacy counter when maybe they're there picking up some of their other um, regular medications and they're telling their friends. And it seems like the um, visit type that's gone viral is birth control. Interesting. And, and I think that plays along to some of the uh, I think there's um, Nurse or, or uh, I don't know how to pronounce that particular company. It's Nurex or Nurse. I don't, I'm not sure. It's oh, N-U-R-X. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yep, yep, um, I, yep. think, I feel like that wave of how, you know, people are uh, wanting to because, you know, at, at times it's not a very complicated visit. So it seems like something perfectly that your product can and your service can have a role in where a, a, um, a patient can just come into the pharmacy uh, that's um, MD box enabled and just says, Hey, I'm ready to get my, you know, my visit for birth control. And then um, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. That kicks it off there. Yeah. And, and so I think what it is, it's a combination of the right visit types. Like obviously we're focused on things that are pretty straightforward. Um, if there is any type of diagnostic test, it's something that is a clear wave test, you know, even though it's, it's professional use where, where we have um, telemedicine extenders performing the collection in these pharmacies, these are simple tests and, you know, they're basically glorified pregnancy tests. They're, they, they tend to be lateral flow chromatography based and some of the more complicated um, tests we're using something like a Sophia analyzer and it's an immunofluorescent based test, but that, that really is the level of complexity of the visits. And, um, and when you have a simple visit and you have something that, um, that obviously there are some medically important questions that get asked. We want to know about somebody's smoking history. We want to know about somebody if they have a history of, of hematologic events or um, blood clotting issues, uh, anything that would be a risk factor for being on birth control. So it's a medically appropriate um, visit, but you don't have to wait three weeks or four weeks to get into your OB guy to prescribe it. Um, it's something that you're just doing on your time so that if you wanted to start birth control, you know, at the at the end of your your, your next cycle, you just start when you want to start it. So um, I, th- I think that especially millennials, um, like the convenience of on-demand medical care. And as long as that they feel that they are not compromising the quality of their medical care, they embrace platforms like ours. It's very interesting. All right. Let's get, let's get to the important part here. How do these pharmacies make money on this? How does that work? Yeah. And so there's, there are a number of ways. So, um, 
right now, obviously, they've got the supportive care type products. So people are already wandering into the pharmacy, even when they don't have a prescription to fill, and they're filling their Tylenols and their Motrins and um, you know, if they got pink eye, any of the eye drops, various classes of eye drops that can help with um, whether you've got itchy eyes or red eyes or a little bit of inflammation in the eyes. And so what consumers don't have is guidance. And so, I mean, I, I've gone in um, and I've watched consumers just kind of stand in the cold cough and flu and allergy section and really not know how to navigate the over-the-counter remedies. People will be taking a, a mucolytic and an antihistamine and a decongestant all at the same time. Because, you know, more is better. Um, and not knowing that maybe taking a mucolytic at the same time as taking an antihistamine might be doing a little bit of pushing and pulling. They're, you know, they're drying out their nose with the antihistamine at the same time they're trying to thin out their mucus with the mucolytic. And so simply by allowing telemedicine visits to kind of take place through the pharmacy setting, there's going to be a more appropriate use of the over-the-counter drugs. You're going to have a treatment plan that reinforces those products. It might lead to more revenue because now instead of just kind of taking it willy-nilly and then figuring out, out that it doesn't work, now you realize it does work, but these are the times that I need to take it. Um, so I think that there's going to be a ancillary benefit just on their over-the-counter sales. Um, in addition, a lot of times people just don't think of some of the things they need. Like I'm sneezing like crazy. Don't forget the box of Kleenexes. So it's all the thing, all the things that the supportive care instructions reinforce in the treatment plan. But now you actually also have the benefit of a prescription. So presumably prescriptions are filled at that pharmacy because that's where the patient already is elected to go to look for their supportive care type products. Um, and if, if there's a, a prescription warranted um, and they're filling it there, that's to their benefit as well. But because we're actually um, contracting that pharmacy as a telemedicine site, uh, we can reimburse the pharmacies um, in a number of different ways. Now, obviously, state by state, it, it, it varies. We want to make sure that what we do is completely legal. And some states allow for pharmacies to act as telemedicine extender sites. Um, some of them, we simply can sell discounted telemedicine visits through the pharmacy counter. And, it's, and right so now, just, it's only in Texas that you're fully operating, correct? It is, but we're ready. What we're doing is um, launching in Florida, um, California, Connecticut, Iowa, Indiana, um, and three or four more states by October 1st. Awesome. So, and we, we should be um, in 47 states by late 2019 and or early 2020. So these are rapidly, it's almost on an every four to six week basis. There's another group of states that are rolling out. That's, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. We're obviously really excited about it. So tell me about the reimbursements. Like uh, you said that uh, there's uh, reimbursements. Like does that, is that based off of the, uh, is that like a percentage of, of any, every single visit that occurs? Is it only if a pharmacist uh, has no, to no, get involved yeah. to, count, to counsel? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not something we can't reimburse um, in, in that way. The, the, the reimbursement is uh, a, a fee that the pharmacists are contracted to act as telemedicine extenders. That has to all be specified in advance. Um, and, and that's one of the ways that this is all legal. Um, you, you also, um, can simply pay them to carry the product. So for a lot of our visits where there are no diagnostic tests, things like pink eye um, or any of the visits, you know, flu, strep, if, if it's not coupled to a test, um, those visits can just be sold at the pharmacy counter. And so they're basically selling a discounted telemedicine visit and they're able to participate that way. Um, for the, uh, when I was talking about improved reimbursements, it used to be that those diagnostic test kits, a pharmacy couldn't get reimbursed for it. I mean, they, they simply don't do medical billing 
at a pharmacy window. You know, you're billing the PBMs um, for the dispensing of the medications. Um, because we're actually using that clinical site um, to conduct a telemedicine visit as an extension of our medical practice, we're performing medical billing and there are billing codes for these diagnostic tests. Now, they're not lucrative. We're not making a ton of money off the test, but we're, we're not losing money on it. We're, we're actually getting reimbursed the cost of the test kit and it's giving us valuable diagnostic data that improves the overall quality of the visit. So um, that's really what I meant is it's not a money loser to get this diagnostic data. Whereas when you were doing it back in that public's pharmacy, you guys probably couldn't get reimbursed or it was very challenging to get reimbursed for the testing you performed or you had to transfer that cost over to the consumers. And um, now if the consumer has insurance, that's something that's just covered by their medical benefits. And I'm assuming that all this billing and documentation occurs on your platform. Like there's no extra software that need that the pharmacy needs to implement or integrate with their pharmacy management software. Um, that's exactly right. And so um, it's taking it's taking place on our um, EMR and billing system. Um, but the truth is, we actually are talking to partners about um, doing a deep integration. So there are a handful of companies that provide some of the backbone of the software that uh, pharmacies all across the country are utilizing. And we actually are in conversations with with those companies um, to actually put our platform onto it so that it will do a deep integration. Um, and the value of that is really just so that pharmacies um, also um, have bilateral communication with our platform. So they're not just waiting to get reports from us, but that they can actually extract that data themselves. So we had met at a show that was tailored towards large national retailers and big chains. Um, but then you also mentioned how this can be, uh, these services can be offered at uh, mom and pop shops or independent pharmacies. Uh, has there been one that's had like more traction um, than the other? Or is there, I would imagine it's a lot, there's a less of a barrier, although the training might be a little bit more cumbersome, but there's a less of a barrier to have an independent pharmacy jump on board with this versus like a large retailer. So can you give oh, some yeah, insight you're right. yeah. to that? Well, you're exactly right. So when we're talking to these large national retailers, you know, these are conversations that start a year before we ever roll out. So with, with some of the um, national retailers that we're going to be rolling out with, um, even in, in October, those are conversations that have been ongoing for 18 to 24 months. When we presented this to some of the smaller kind of mom and pop pharmacies or, you know, community pharmacies, it, it, you're talking to the owner. They just make a decision. They, they see the platform, they believe in it, and they say, yes, we're going to do this. And it really is, um, we're the rate limiting factor. It's how quickly can we get somebody in there to, to perform the training? And, um, and, and, and you said it. I mean, it, it's the same training, whether you're training a national organization or you're training one location. So um, now we have put together the, the video series. It makes it a little bit easier for us. But early on, our focus was, let's talk to these big national retailers. But now as a doctor and really what my whole goal was to, you know, really I wanted to increase access to healthcare. I wanted to lower healthcare costs. To me, this sits perfectly with the role of a community pharmacist, you, especially in rural areas where um, you may drive 20 or 30 miles to the next town over where the doctor is, but you've got a pharmacy in your small town. And there's no reason if that pharmacy is equipped with a clinical service window or a clinical service area, that most of the things that you go to the doctor for outside of your kind of scheduled annual exams 
um, can be done right there in that small town with the pharmacy. So um, we, we have a couple just locally here in Austin that we piloted this with. And obviously it was it was much easier to launch because um, there you've got somebody that is very um, in tune with what, that, what we're trying to accomplish. And they want to see the program succeed at their store. And, um, you know, because they're the owner and, and they're proud of it. And in, in some cases, it's a family pharmacy business that you know has been in the family for several generations. And now this is them taking the pharmacy offering to a new level. They want to make sure, one, that it goes well, um, but that also that there's nothing lost. You know, there's no quality that's being sacrificed. So um, they tend to be a little bit more invested in the rollout being successful. Um, when we have done uh, pilots and we're in the middle of a pilot here in Texas with a large chain, um, you might have the heads of the pharmacy that chose to do the pilot that are very invested. The individual locations don't perform as well as other locations. And you just might not have that buying of that individual pharmacy staff, um, it, you know, pushing patients towards um, the, the product in the same way as you do in, in other locations where a pharmacist is really on board with it. So in, in, until you kind of get the the favor of that pharmacy staff and you really have convinced them that this is something that really accelerates um, healthcare at their pharmacy, you know, it, for them, it's just kind of the, they're, they're just kind of slogging through the grind and, and doing what they do best. And you're telling them now you're also going to be a medical office. Sometimes it just, it, it falls on deaf ears. And so mm-hmm. with the, with the um, smaller um, independent pharmacies, if they elect to do this, you know, that the, the decision maker is probably the pharmacist that's going to be implementing it. So I, I think that it's something that we're really excited about. If we were able to, you know, get in front of the National Association of, of, of Independent Pharmacies and present to large collectives of these independent pharmacists and convince them that this is something worth doing and, and we see them start rolling it out, I think that that patient population is probably more underserved than the typical population that's served by the big box retailers. Um, and I also think that you're going to see just more utilization on a location by location basis. Yeah, I definitely agree. And we can all definitely connect with you offline and, and give you some uh, insight as to a lot of the uh, uh, pharmacy shows that we go to and how we're, how our company is yep. targeting independence and stuff. We'll talk about that offline. Um, all right. So kind of stepping outside of, uh, kind of MD box. So you, you had mentioned that pharmacists and community pharmacists are a great way to kind of extend these services and these um, virtual visits. But uh, from a, from like a physician's perspective, because it sounds like you have, you know, really high regard for pharmacists, which is awesome. And it's not something that we commonly hear out in the public, especially from a physician. So I'd like to get your thoughts about how physicians in the rest of healthcare can better utilize the skill set of a pharmacist. What's your insights there? Yeah, and I think that um, I think that a lot of that has to do with maybe people just getting too comfortable in their own clinical practices and forgetting, um, you know, who is it that 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 helped you out when you were a resident and a fellow, and when you were doing um, collaborative rounds and you're rounding with a, a whole team that consists of a social worker, a pharmacist, um, a nurse, and then the rest of the the medical staff. Um, you realize it's on more than one occasion, it was a pharmacist that saved your butt, or it was the nurse that saved your butt, or it's a social worker that put in the tough hours and found something out for you and really made the discharge uh, planning happen. And so um, I, I think it's unfortunate. I think that the, the problem is somebody then settles into their own little private clinical practice, and they're no longer interacting on a daily basis with anybody but their own staff. 
and it becomes easy to forget how useful these other people are in the delivery of healthcare. Um, I think that the techno- the connected technologies are going to make it easier to connect the doctors to the pharmacists. Um, and I don't know that necessarily it's MD box platform. I think that, you know, as we kind of start adopting more and more technologies, like I'm excited about everything from virtual reality, um, artificial intelligence interfaces through things like Amazon Alexa and Google home, where uh, you'll almost be able to connect with a, a virtual doctor or a virtual pharmacist simply because it hears you coughing in the background. And I think that once these technologies are developed a little bit further, that we're going to have not necessarily artificial visits, but we'll have virtual visits where you can be um, either through augmented reality or virtual reality in the same room with a doctor and a pharmacist at the same time, all collaborating on healthcare, and not just for simple acute issues, but for even complicated chronic diseases. And so um, I, I really think that's coming within the next several years. Um, and I think that platforms like ours will start um, creating that bridge to that conversation between doctors and pharmacists. All right. Before I let you go uh, and to wrap up here, I got two random fire kind of uh, lightning round questions for you here. Okay. The first one is if you had unlimited funding to hire a pharmacist for your company, what would you have them doing? How many would you hire? Let's say 10. I don't know. Let's give it a random number. You, yep. you hire 10 yep. pharmacists. What do you want those pharmacists doing for your company? Yeah. I mean, if I had unlimited funding, then uh, one, we would have some work on education. So we would have, we already have product in, uh, or um, disease specific information handouts that we give, but we also um, would want to have that same type of information for medications. And uh, we'd have somebody actually reviewing all the care plans, just like you do in a hospital where if you've got patients that are on multiple medications, you want to make sure that you um, have taken into consideration all of the drug interactions. And, you know, sometimes what is the best single medication for a single condition when a patient has multiple conditions and multiple medications, you end up putting them on second line therapies because of toxicities and it allows them to be treated for both conditions at the same time. The types of things that can easily slip through the cracks of a doctor or nurse practitioner and so I would just I, I would have redundant safety systems being manned by pharmacists, education portals manned by pharmacists. Um, we would have a whole separate um, um, offering that is not limited to just telemedicine visits, but we'd have health and nutrition visits. We'd have ask a pharmacist a question type visits. And um, it would really be expanded around all the different tools that are based on wearables and things that we can put into people's um, um, homes and um, and really just enhance the quality of data that we're getting from the patient and that we're sending back to the patient. Interesting. I like that. Okay. And if you had to take someone out to dinner, one person that has to be famous and they have to be alive. And let me explain why I, I say that they have to be alive whenever I ask this question all my guests on, on the show. The yep. reason why they have to be alive is because I feel like people that have uh, people that have passed away, if they were great, they usually they, their greatness gets recognized much more after they've passed away. Um, you know, one of the recent thing, like just randomly that comes to mind is like a, a famous rapper that uh, passed away that people really started appreciating his music after he died. And that made me think about like, well, when I ask this question, I want I want to be able to people to recognize great people that are alive today and doing what they're doing or maybe have recently done what they were great at doing. So that's why I ask, like, the who would you take to dinner that's famous? They have to be alive uh, 
and have a Wikipedia page and why? Yeah, I would say Elon Musk. I mean, I'm, I'm a Tesla fanboy, but not just because <laughs> of what he's accomplished with Tesla. Um, seriously, I mean, when I was in um, middle school, I, I had um, for, for a science project um, had basically specked out an all electric car with four motors, one over each wheel. And uh, just love the thought of of breaking our dependence on fossil fuels. And um, but then you have somebody that's so visionary to be able to, you know, basically be successful um, in, in a um, financial um, fintech type company. But then instead of just resting on his laurels, retiring, traveling the world for the next 40 years, he started applying what he made to changing the world, to actually spending a big chunk of his own money on creating um, an industry that didn't exist and really transforming how we think about um, cars, how we think about space travel. And I mean, what I'd really like to do is convince him to get excited about healthcare. And mm-hmm. um, one, just because when you get somebody like that, that thinks outside the box, um, kind of having a conversation about what we're working on and all of the future technologies that, uh, or you know, current technologies that we can leverage to transform healthcare, get his mind working on a project like that instead of you know making really cool um, flamethrowers, <laughs> we can actually get him building some really cool um, platforms that enhance the quality of healthcare. I mean, just it, even if it was a dinner at McDonald's, I, I would love to sit down with Elon for a couple of minutes and yeah. show him what we're working on and talk about how um, what he thinks healthcare is going to be like. I mean, even as it applies to like. Going to space, healthcare in space is a non-trivial issue. Um, you know, if, if you want to put somebody on Mars, you got to get them to Mars, and they've got to be somebody's got to be exposed to space radiation. They a big problem that NASA has with astronauts for people that are in space for any length of time is kidney stone formation, mm. and so um, and bone density loss. And so, just getting him to think through a healthcare platform for the projects he's working on, but just day-to-day life in America, day-to-day life around the world. Yeah, the pharmacodynamics and kinetics changes um, significantly when you are out in space and stuff, too. Even just gravity um, also has a role yep. in it, which I, I didn't know. Um, but uh, I've I've actually said Elon Musk as well as some of my answers. Like when someone would kind of <laughs> ask it back at me, you def- you articulated it way better as to why, <laughs> why it would be a good <laughs> idea to take him out to dinner. Um, so I definitely appreciate your answer. Um, all right, so let's wrap this up. So if anyone wanted to connect back with you um, after this episode or learn more about MD Box, what would be the best way for them to do that? A couple of ways. And so mdbox.com is our website and it's launched. It's got some really good um, information about our site. But if people wanted to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, it's the same handle. It's mdbox app. So the letters mdboxapp for Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and then mdbox.com. Awesome. This is a great conversation. I really do appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Richard. I really enjoyed that conversation. I'm looking forward to following along with MD Box's success into community pharmacies across the nation and really seeing how that plays out with integrating to workflow and providing a new revenue model for community pharmacies. Make sure to connect with us on any of your favorite social media platforms. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and I hope you have a great rest of your day.